0: Good morning. In Drew's uh, devotional thought, actually, I can just hear my little daughter Nazare, she's entered that stage of starting to doubt, so I don't know if I've uh, teased her too much or what, but I'll say something and she'll look at me and actually? So as a little child, that question of, of doubt comes about, and it can be from different factors, so... Thank you for that thought, Drew. Very thought-provoking. As I come on a Sunday morning, sometimes I ask myself, why do I come? If you were to ask your children, why do we go to church, what would they say? So I I challenge you to, to... to do that activity with your children sometimes. So why do, why do we go to church? And then uh, maybe keep going up the spectrum and ask yourself, why do you go to church? So I posed this morning, why are you here? Think about that for a little bit. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, if you would with me. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to simply read uh, verses 3 to 12, follow along, trying to soak up the words, and maybe be ready to give something or share something that stands out to you as we read through. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Let me give the setting first. So Jesus saw the multitudes, so he went up to a mountain with his disciples, and this is what he said to them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted the prophets which were before you. Now, anything jump out to you? So I'd like to do a little activity actually. So as we're reading through there, if something jumped out to you, actually turn around to somebody behind you or in front of you and just share maybe a verse or a thought that jumped out. So go ahead, turn around and share something. Y'all are great students. Some of you improvise. You turn to the side instead of back or front. Sometimes students, well, there's nobody in front of me. There's nobody behind me. Thank you for participating in that. And I know I I sprung that on you. Matthew chapter 5, we dig in and read a couple verses. I'm going to circle back uh, to that uh, later. These are the words that Jesus started out his ministry with to his disciples. A couple things he said beforehand, but this is his first, I think, teachable moment that he drew his disciples to him. This starts the New Testament, the new era. In the early 1900s, there was a group of Mennonites who lived in Germany, and they were prosperous, but they were not accepted by the culture around them. They were persecuted in the country of Germany. World War I came along, and they saw an opportunity to partner with their, the people around them, the communities around them, and some of, some of them joined in the war efforts, went off to war. World War I, obviously they lost. And so they were still kind of the underdogs, the cast-outs of the German culture and communities and then you had Adolf Hitler coming along. And Adolf Hitler uh, comes along and prom- promises prosperity and victory. And they, they kind of bought into his mantra. And he, Hitler's big thing was the Jews are the bad ones. And the, German, uh, the, the uh, Mennonites won the hearts of the Germans because of them being underdogs they married within themselves. That means they were of true Arabian ascent, Iranian ascent. And because of this, they won the applause of the German communities around them. And so Adolf Hitler comes along, and they join his, his uh, mission of wiping out the, the Jews. And so we have Mennonites become Nazi Mennonites and join in the Adolf Hitler regime, persecute, kill the Jews. They're no good. Mennonites. Mennonites. Anabaptists, Bible-believing Christians, joined in the war effort of killing their fellow neighbors and fellow man's, fellow men. What calls that? They were too focused on the what they were doing, and they forgot the why. Why were they who they were? What made them Mennonite? What made them Anabaptists? What made them Christian? And when so when the opportunity came along to receive the applause of culture around them, they joined the efforts because they forgot their why. And as I look back at that appalling story of Mennonites joining the war effort, I ask myself, what would be the case today? Would we would we do the same? It's easy to look back on history and judge and say we would have done different, but would have we? Would we? This brings me to the reason of my message, and that is the title, Why Church? And as you will notice, my last sermon was called Why School? And so I guess you could say I'm on a why movement, or a why series is my goal, asking the question why. I'm not sure if you ever heard of the golden circle of Christianity, but there's three parts to it. the why, the how, and the what. And too often we get caught up in the what we do, that we forget the why we do it. People aren't driven by the what. We are driven by the why we are doing it. And so I, I'm, I'm, my goal in this why series is to circle, s- circle around and just touch on a couple key points of our Christian life and just ask a simple question, why? Why? Why church? And I do it carefully. Because it could give the connotation that I'm answering questions, and I'm not. My goal in this is just to provoke thoughts. I don't have close to answers. But I want us to think about why we do what we do. Why church? And this morning, I want to inspire us to the work of the church. And again, I want to circle back and do a, follow a similar route of what we did with Why School And I want to look at what God says. What does God say about church? We're going to look back at history and see what people did. We're going to look at where we are today. And I want to cast a little vision going forward of what we can do with church. Turn with me to Matthew 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is talking to Peter. And here he says, he's asking Peter beforehand, "Uh, who am I? And Peter answers, you know, the disciples answer. And then he says to them, but whom do you say that I am? Not the people out there. Who do you say that I am? And he says, uh, verse 16, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then verse 17, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then verse 18, the first time I think church is used in the, the Bible. And I say unto thee, That thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is where uh, the Catholic Church really points back to St. Peter. Upon Peter is the church going to be built. But I think Jesus was pointing to the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Son of God, and upon this rock is the church built. And not the church, but the church. The body of believers is built on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Each one of us have a personal choice to accept Jesus as our Savior. Once that is complete, the church has the place, is at the place to be to birth and to, to, to grow. This church is uh, a word, the Greek word for it is ekklesia, the called out, the chosen. Now, is there any words in the new test in the old testament that would uh, correlate with the word church? I guess what was the church of the old testament? The synagogue? You could probably say or the temple. But there's a significant difference in this in that the synagogue was a place where they, the Israelites came to offer sacrifices. It was the place they had to be to connect with God. It was part of the law, the Old Testament uh, sacrifices they had to do. The New Testament church is not a building. It is a people. And so we see a shift here as we go into the New Testament. The synagogue was an actual place of worship. The church is a group of people. And we heard the term, we call this the church. Where are we going? We're going to church. But really it's the church house, the meeting house, whatever you want to call it. The church is made up of the people. And so here we have Jesus telling Peter that the church is going to be built on the fact that I am the Son of God. And it's going to grow. The church is going to grow. The body of believers is going to grow, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus introduces the idea of church. Now turn with me to chapter 18 and verse 17. And here, Jesus uh, talks of to his, is talking to his disciples about correcting other believers or uh, somebody who is straying, a brother caught in a fault. And he says, if there's a trespass, you know, go to your brother, address it. And then in verse uh, 17, he says, And if he shall neglect to hear them, a, gr- a group of two or three witnesses, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Here I get the connotation that church is not about us, church is about the group, the family, the body of believers. And he says, if you don't listen to the body of believers as a whole, you're no good. You're, fought, you're, you're going down the wrong path. And so Jesus again introduces the concept of church as a family. We are here together in the process of sanctification. It's a group sanctified group sanctification effort. It's an interdependence, not just me and God, but it's an interdependence on each other to keep us on the straight and narrow. This is what God is saying about church as we ask the question, why church? First of all, he says it's built on the concept that I am the son of God. Secondly, it's a group. It can't be done by yourself. Now turn with me to Acts 2 verse 47. In Acts, we have uh, the disciples gathering together, and the church kind of forms and, and starts. In Acts two, verse forty-seven, it says this: It talks about the, uh, the in the verses before, it talks about the believers gathering together, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such such as should be saved. Here I see another key concept of the church in that it should be growing. There should be people coming in. There should be believers, converts. That should be the focus of the church. So it's centered on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a group effort of interdependence and sanctification of that relationship with God. And out of that, we're inviting others to join us is what I see God saying about church. And we could go on as as we we could dig into the New Testament as it talks about church. We'll save that for later. Of another story about Elsie Baumgartner. Elsie was a young woman who was born in the late 1400s. And in the early 1500s when the Anabaptist movement was starting, she was arrested in the Zurich area for being rebaptized as a lot of Anabaptists were at the time. She was brought into prison. I think she was there for a couple days. And finally, the authorities called her and said, Elsie, listen, if you leave the county and promise not to come back, you can have your freedom. Elsie's response was the verse from Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, was her simple response. And she stuck to her belief that, no, I'm going to stay here. You can do with my body what you want. And she later went on to be executed. The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, went on to become a key phrase of the Anabaptist movement. And it symbolized three things. So as we're, as we're talking about the church, I see it... Uh, the Anabaptists bought into the, this verse and was kind of their, their, uh, their theme verse or their mantra, if I can use that term. First of all, it's political in nature in the fact that it reminded them of who their allegiance is to. As Elsie was there, she said, my allegiance is not to you, it is the Lord's. I'm not alleg- uh, alleging or pledging my allegiance to you as a country, to you leaders who were in control, but I'm pledging my allegiance to God to Jesus Christ. And so this phrase remind the earth is the lord reminds reminded the Anabaptists that their allegiance was to Christ. Nobody else but to Christ, no matter where they were. Yes, they were part of communities and countries, we have US passports, but that's not really our home. Our home is the Lord. Political in nature. It reminded them of who their allegiance is to it's economical in nature in that it reminded them that everything belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's. Everything we have is the Lord's. And if you track the Anabaptist movement throughout history, everywhere they went, they became prosperous because they had this concept in mind that it's not theirs. It's the Lord's. They would often be, uh, Driven out of an area because they could not worship as they wanted. And so they came over to, they went up to Russia, they went down to Mexico, they went to the U.S. And each time they went there with next to nothing, and they built up something prosperous because they bought into the fact that it's not ours, it belongs to the Lord. Does that still resonate with us today? It belongs to the Lord. It reminded them of that. Thirdly, it was theological in nature in that it said God is in control. The earth is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. He is in control of all. And because of that, I don't need to fight for freedom. I can live out of that freedom. Too often, we think we need to work to right the wrongs that are done. But God has already defeated sin and Satan He's already righted that, and we do not need to bring about justice. That is God's. So God is in control. So as we think about why church, what does God say, I bring up that simple illustration, the phrase, the earth is the Lord's from Psalm 24, to help us remind us of the fact who our allegiance is to, to what we have, or what we have to who it belongs, and to remind us that God is in control. That's why we do Church. So as we think back now to what people did, church history is an interesting um, thing to consider and look back on. If you go back to the beginning in Genesis, God created man in his own image. And his goal was to worship with them in the Garden of Eden, in perfection. And we know that was not the case. For the next 2,000 years, we see Adam being kicked out of the garden, and we see God speaking to individuals but there was a rapid decline in the human, humanity connection with God. And then we get to 2,000 to, to 4,000, the time of Christ. And we have Abraham, who God spoke to and called him out to move, to prepare the way for the Israelites. And then we see the, throughout the Old Testament, we see the Israelites and the law that God put in place. He put that in place to call people to himself. This was, I guess you could call it, the church. And then we get to Jesus' arrival. And we have his sacrifice. And now we have the New Testament. And I already referred to the, the fact in Matthew where the church, the New Testament church is started. And in Matthew 16, 18, uh, by the way, who was the first pope? We looked at a verse earlier. The Catholic Church turns to the verse that we looked at earlier, Matthew 16, 18, and calls him Peter, the first pope. Upon this rock, I will build my church. So that's where the Catholics look back and say, that's when the church started, when God said, told Peter, upon you, I'm going to build the church. But in Matthew 16, 18, we have Jesus presenting the idea, the word, church. And it is his called out people, the people who have accepted him as a Savior, and who are now coming together, interdependent upon each other, to worship him. And there we have our introduction to the church. And then we have, the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have Jesus presenting this new church idea, this new way of living. He says, put away with the old. I'm here to bring about something new. And there we have the start of the church in Acts, as we looked at They gathered together in one. Now, an interesting thing about the church is it was characterized by persecution. You look at all that most of the disciples were persecuted and executed. And as I look at the start of the church, I I sometimes shake my head in wonder at the persecution that they overcame. And in the midst of horrible persecution, the church continued to grow. Because they were still focused on the why. Why are we doing church? Because of our love for God. And then about AD 13, Constantine comes along. Was Constantine a good thing or a bad thing? He was a person, so I should not call him a thing. He was the king. And he comes along and decrees in AD 13, he legalizes all Christianity. Ha, hallelujah. We are free to worship. But the problem with that is now the state and the church were combined and the king or the pope was in control and called all the shots. So we enter an era of the church where it was a control factor, where the king or the pope told everybody what to do, what to believe, what to read. So it was kind of a good thing, but because of the lack of persecution, everybody was a Christian and nobody was for real. That's what we see in the first years of A.D. And then come along the 1,000s, and I referred to this in, in my last sermon about the Crusades. Because the people just bought into whatever they were told, they, were not, they did not have a personal relationship with God. They followed along in the Crusades and tried to br- take back their land. And then we move ahead to the, about the 1,300s, and we have John Wycliffe coming along and saying everyone should have a Bible. So now, finally, he comes along and says, no, it's not just what the Pope and the priests are telling us. It's also about a personal relationship with God. William Tyndale, John Huss are instrumental men in this time frame of bringing about the Bible to the common people. And then we fast forward to 1517, and we look at another influential person, Martin Martin Luther, and the Reformation that started. He nailed the 95 theses on on the church door, and why did he do that? He was pushing back on all the indulgences that the church was demanding the people pay to cover their sins. So in this era of church, you went to church, but you had to pay to cover your sins. You, you did what the Pope and the, and the priest told you to do. There was no relationship between you and God except for a remnant. Martin Luther's big push was God and I. It's all about you and God. Almost doing away with the church. Notice the year that I said, 1517. A couple, year later, couple years later, 1525, we have the start of the Anabaptist movement. Eurich Zwingli comes along, and he pushes back on the Catholic church. But Felix Mons, Conrad Grebel, Grebel, Menno Simons came along, and they even pushed a little further than Zwingli. And they said, no, it's not about being baptized when you're a child. It's about adult baptism, believer's baptism. It's, it's not about the indulgences that we pay. It's being saved. And, and the list could go on and on if we would look, dig into why the Anabaptists started. Was it easy? No. They were persecuted. But they led in the movement away from this idea that the pope and the priest and the church calls all the shots. But it's also about a personal relationship. But they did not let go of the fact that there had to be an interdependent worship experience as well. Interesting tidbit about 1693 is when Jacob Ammon would have started the uh, the Amish uh, movement. And then we go ahead and move into the 1700s, the time when the U.S., the soil we are on, was being birthed. And we have preachers like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, uh, John and Charles Wesley would have started the Methodists. And here we have a great awakening where fiery preachers brought down the wrath of God upon the people, if I can call it that way, and reminded them of their De- they're the, the need for them to make a decision of a personal relationship with Jesus. So here we have the church kind of awakening up to the real reason of why we have church. It's all centered on Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. And they circled back to that and called people to repentance and living a holy life. The Methodists were started because uh, they believed that there were certain things you had to do in following in leading a holy life after conversion, it was not just about conversion, it was about leading a holy life afterwards. So that's what we see in the 1700s. So good things started taking shape. And notice I say 1700s, when was the War of Independence or the Declaration of Independence signed? 1776. So, in the wake of this movement, we have the US starting. So, it was started on a good note. But unfortunately, we enter the 1800s, and we got America was prosperous. Because they were founded on good, uh, godly principles, we were prosperous. But because of this, there was a decline. People started focusing on their wealth instead of what was important. In the 1800s, it was all about God and me, not about the church. And then we enter the 1900s, and we have the world wars that come about. And through this time, there was a movement of liberalism and fundamentalism. And liberalism is an idea of it's all about human reasoning. So there was some good theological thinkers who came about at this time, but they moved away, oh, you know what, it's not all about the rules. God doesn't care about that. It's about accepting anything. And so there was a liberal movement, and the, a lot of the Mennonites reacted the opposite way and moved towards fundamentalism, which meant, oh, it's founded on what you do, and creating good rules and things in place to follow after. It's all about the fundamentals. But through this time, we have many church denominations in the middle of the 1900s. But because fundamentalism wasn't uh, a long-term solution, it was hard to follow all the rules, then we had a, uh, evangelicalism that came about. you know, you got you to make an appeal. Church is not all about uh, check, making a checklist of what you do and what you don't do. It's also about your relationship with Christ. It's got to be new. It's got to be exciting. And in the late 1900s, we have the evangelicalism that comes about. And it's all about producing our own, a lot of materials and schools and uh, we're being produced in this time to make Christianity look like a good thing. Not all wrong, but a lot of dangers there. In the late 1900s, we have a prosperous age. No war and no hardships. In the, in the beginning of the 1900s, our forefathers went through a lot of hardship and difficulty, and that's what helped them grapple with why they did what they did. And then we enter the 2000s, now, And I feel like in the past 20 years, a lot of the question in the church is, where are we going? Why are we here? So that's a quick, very quick overview of where the church has gone in the past. I touch very briefly on a couple key moments in church history. I encourage you to dig in. It's important that we go back, especially to our Anabaptist start. And I'll just make a note of that uh, what year, is it, what year is coming up in two years? Two, 2025, the 500th anniversary of the Anabaptist movement. So I think we would do well to take this time as a way to commemorate, not celebrate the individuals, but look back and say, why did they start what they did as we come up on this 500th anniversary of Anabaptism? Okay, so we looked at why church or we looked at uh, what God said, we looked at what people did. Now quickly, I want to say, where are we? And as we think about church, we're here on the foundation that Jesus is the Son of God, right? We're here recognizing that there needs to, we need to have a brotherhood for the sanctification and growing process, And it's not about us, but it's about bringing other people in to join us in the journey. So why church? Where are we? I think we have our allegiance in other things. I point back, I brought out the three points of the earth is the Lord in the fullness thereof. Our allegiance I see is to other things. And that is evident in the I don't have time. We hear a lot of that, and life is busy, but I'm questioning what we make time for. And what we make time for is a sign of where our allegiance is. So I question where our allegiance is. Is it to Jesus, or is it to other things around us? Secondly, I don't think we view our stuff as the Lord's, because a phrase I hear repeatedly in the past is, I deserve this oh, I I finally deserve a vacation. I deserve to be off of these duties for a while because I served here. We don't view our stuff as the Lord's is where I see the church at large. That's where I see where we are. Sometimes I think we view our works as, as salvation. No, we don't say that. But here's what I hear. What can I do to get by? Or why can't I do that? Is the phrase that comes up repeatedly as we talk about living a life of holiness. Well, why why can't I? So we then view our work, well, I have to do our works to be good enough. It's not what it's about. So I'm saying here this morning, this is where I see the church at large. Maybe some things here, the church and the church at large. I also see the church isn't growing new converts. And I have questions about that. What does that mean? I also see a, a problem with virtue signaling. Our walk and talk don't match. What we say on Sunday and what we do in the week don't always match. And I have questions about it as I look at how I live. We like to say the good things, and, but do, does our life, what we do, actually ma- match up? Because of prospering, we've accumulated stuff. Rules were made to bring unity and accumulation. Circling back to the 1900s, as life became more prosperous, we then had to start making rules on uh, what the dresses looked like and what the veiling looked like and what our cars and many different things that rules were put in place to bring about unity because of everything we were accumulating. And now today, many are pushing back on that. So that's why I see where we are. Now, I want to end on a good note I want to say, what's our vision going forward? Where can the church go? And I get passionate about the work of the church. As I think about Myerstown, the brothers and sisters that are here, where are we going to go? And if we can grapple with, grapple with the serious issues, why? I think Myerstown can be prosperous for the Lord's sake. Three verses I want to bring up as I think about our vision. I have a vision that we're addicted. 1 Corinthians 16:15 says this. I beseech you brethren, you know of the house of Stephanas, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they were addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So back then, Peter uh, Paul calls out the, this house that was addicted had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They were that focused on the work of Christ that They just couldn't stop doing it. And I have a vision that the church of Myerstown is like that as well. We just can't stop doing it. We're focused on the service to the king. When we're focused on the why, the church being centered on Jesus, only then can we become focused and addicted to the work of the church. Every opportunity we have, what else can we do for the cause of Christ. So, I have a vision that the church is addicted to the work, the ministry of the saints. There's a problem in the way with that, and that is materialism. I, I already pointed this. We have a lot of things, and I'm, I'm concerned about it. And that's a factor that is keeping us from full service of a, being addicted to the work of the church. Addicted to the work for the work of the church. Secondly, is belong. So, we're addicted, we belong. And that focuses on the family. Um, I have a verse in Mark, verse 3, to read. Mark 3, verse 31. And uh, Jesus is uh, ministering here, and he's in a house. And there came unto his brother. there came... There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about, and they said, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and brethren? And he looked around at them which sat beside him, and he says, Behold my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of the Lord, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. I see... In a church, I have a vision for a belonging that we are a family, and we view it as such. So we're focused on the why. Our belonging is understanding the how. How do we get there? We recognize that we're a family. We don't just give more freedom. So uh, thinking about a family, we invest in love without compromise, but that doesn't mean giving more freedom. It's learning how to give up our freedoms for the cause of Christ. What happens in a family? As I observe our family growing, I see everybody having to give and take. It takes sacrifice on dad. It takes sacrifice on mom. It takes sacrifice on the children to not always get what they want. A family takes a sacrifice in working together to make it work. The same is in a church. I have a vision that the church has a sense of belonging and a family, that we are all giving up our freedoms for the good of the church, a sense of belonging and a family. And Jesus says here, it's not about your blood relatives. It's about who you serve with, those who accept Jesus. And I think sometimes we're too focused on our extended family stuff that we forget about the family of the church. As we think about the church, it's a family. Sometimes we come into church with a sense of, well, why are we doing this? In a church, we need to sacrifice what, what our opinions are sometimes for the work of the church. And I have a concern with this. In the past two years, there's been two Keystone churches that have left because of things as such as the veiling and the dress and the little things. And I ask myself, where's Myerstown at with that? If we would start talking about our veils and our dresses and our suits and our cars, and would we be at a place to discuss it? So I have a concern that we are a family. We sacrifice. Our desires and our wants for the good, the belonging of the family. That is, we're understanding the how to get there. There's an independence of belonging. Thirdly, I see a connection. Acts 14, 27. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, what did they do when they were together? They rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith into the Gentiles as they gathered. So as the church came together, they came together and they met, and they were talking about how God was working in their lives throughout the week. I have a vision that when we get together as a church, we connect, talking about how God is working in our lives. And because of that, we don't want to miss church. And a concern I have is the attendance I've I've witnessed in the church at large and now maybe we could just have an enrollment list and see who's showing up when. No, that's not the problem. Sometimes I, get, I, I look at the church attendance on a Wednesday night or even a Sunday morning and say, wow, where is everybody? Well, I'm focused on the wrong thing. I get it. But is a sign of where our allegiance is, and I'm concerned. And dads, I want to call you out. I was blessed uh, this Wednesday men's, uh, men's meeting. I forget how many, uh, quite a few men were there, and it blessed me. Not that it's all about the numbers, but it showed a care. And I think sometimes we do activities throughout the week, we're going, going going, and then we get to Wednesday night or Sunday evening, I say, so, "Oh, we're tired. I get it. It's a family. But maybe we need to focus on what's important and say no to some other things so we have time to come and connect so we can be a family. The reason I brought up Matthew 5 is. In the early church, they got together and there was often not people assigned to preach. They would just dig in and have a Bible study. That's what they did. I'm not suggesting that we go that way. But sometimes I think we come to church expecting to the preacher and the Sunday school teacher and the song leader to lead out. How do we come? Do we come ready to connect? So, brothers and sisters, that's my vision. And I, I'm not saying I have answers. I'm not here to to condemn. I'm here to encourage, and I want us to grapple with these things. Why do we do church? And it should get us excited when we go back and answer the question, why? It is for the cause of Christ. As I was talking this morning, I want to give credit to other people. I've researched a lot, uh, guys like Chester Weaver, Frank Reed, a lot of uh, people from Anabaptist perspectives. I've gained knowledge or some information for this message, so I want to give credit to them. In closing, I want to circle back to that verse, the earth is the Lord's. As we think about why church, I want us to remember that the earth is the Lord's. It is centered on Jesus Christ. That is why we do church. How? We do it together. Christ is at the center. We do it together inter- interdependently. And what? What do we do? We're addicted to the work of Christ. We belong. We focus on the family, releasing our opinions for the good of the family. And what and uh, we connect. We want to come so we can connect and share what God is doing. That is why church, that is how church will grow. I have a passion for church. I love church. I think it is where th- the cause of Christ will continue. And again, I come this morning, I don't want to cro- come across condemning. Some of you heard specifics. Oh, Pastor Zach thinks that everybody should be at church every Sunday. No, please don't hear that. Or I don't, I don't know what you heard this morning as I talked about some specifics at church, about church. And as you, get, as you hear this, don't get defensive. I'm not here to step on anybody's toes. I'm here, let's talk about the good of the church. So God bless you, brothers and sisters. I am encouraged with where I see Myerstown at. And if we can grapple with why, I think we will be in a place to affect our children and the community around us for the cause of Christ. Let's all stand. God bless you as you go about your week. Serve God fully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. And as we look back and see you working, see a remnant of people that have remained faithful, it is our desire to remain faithful as well. Thank you for sending your son to die. That is the foundation of the church. And it is out of a love for you and why we are involved in church. An interdependent family that continually points us to you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Myerstown. I pray that we would grapple with the real issues of life and push on towards victory, push on towards living a life that is focused on serving you. Take us as we go from here. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. I pray that you would give us safety as we head home and go about our uh, Labor Day weekend and our different activities that happen. May we be shining lights for you. In Jesus' name, amen.